Advent series on hope, peace, joy, and today we talk about love. I've been away most of December, so it's good to be back here uh, to share God's Word. So let's, let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll move freely in our midst while you speak to us, that we will truly understand the hope, joy, peace, and love of Christmas. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Russell Moore shared this story. He overheard a conversation between two young men in a music store. One of them was just blasting um, the Christmas song on this particular album. And Moore found himself nodding in agreement. And then the young man said he disliked all Christmas songs. And then Moore thought, maybe I'm the presence of a Grinch. You know why it seems so negative about life? What's there not to like about Christmas? But then the young man began to explain. He says, you know, the lyrics of these Christmas songs, they are so cloy, so boring. There's no narrative tension. It's like reading a book without conflicts, a story without conflicts. What's so exciting about it? Do you agree with that? Our Christmas message, the songs that we sing, are they over-sentimentalized? Too saturated, too sterile, too sanitized. How do they meet and bear up to the weight of reality, the challenges and terrors that we face? You see, in Christmas, of course, we want to sing about peace and joy and what have you, but what kind of peace, what kind of joy, what kind of love are we singing about? When we look at Scripture, it talks about love, peace, joy, and what have you, but it also talks about tears, fears, grief, isolation. And if we do not understand the full meaning of Christmas, some of us may be sitting there singing about joy and peace, and you find that, why has Christmas passed by me? Why is it that I still struggle with tears and grief and isolation? What went wrong? Do I not have enough faith? So today from Matthew 2, the Christmas story, I'd like to talk, talk, introduce the, the, the narrative tension of the Christmas story. From Matthew chapter 2, the narrative tension. And then in Hosea 11, to talk about the love of the hope, peace, joy, and love of Christmas. So we know the Christmas story about Jesus born in a manger. Um, but, you know, the narrative tension of Christmas found in Matthew 2, it says, now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and says, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Harold is going to search for the child to destroy him. Now, what happened here? What's the background? To understand this, we need to start from verse 1, right? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Harold the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. First, who is Harold the Great? At this time, Jerusalem is under the Romans. And so Romans have local kings. And the person they put in charge of Jerusalem and Judea is this guy called Harold the Great. There were magi or wise men from the east. Who were they? 500 years before this, before the time of Jesus. Uh, the Babylonians came to Jerusalem, destroyed it, took the Israelites back home to Babylon, current day uh, Iraq. And there they stayed for 70 years in captivity. And then after 70 years, some of a remnant retain, returned to rebuild their home 
but majority of them stayed back in Babylon because they already got so used to the life there. And so I believe it is these Jews remaining in Babylon who impacted the culture, so much so that the philosophers, the wise men, begin to understand that God had promised a saviour. So the Magi from the East are probably the wise men from Babylon. They came looking for this saviour that God has promised because they saw this astrological phenomenon and they followed it. So they came to look for Herod, who was king, and asked, you know, where is this king of the Jews? Now, how do you expect Herod to respond? If you're the king and then somebody can tell you there's another king. Herod the king heard about it. He was troubled. He gathered all Jerusalem with him. And then that means all the chief priests, scribes, and the people. And he asked them where the Messiah will be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. He has been prophesied in Micah. And you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so it says, based on this uh, book of Micah, the prophecy, Messiah or Saviour was born in Bethlehem. And so Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem. He said, go search for the child. When you have found him, tell me, so that I may come to worship him. You believe? Of course, he felt threatened. So he told the Magi, you go and uh, if you find him, let me know so I also can go to worship. After hearing the king, they went their way and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, we don't know what this star is. It could be the Shekinah glory of God. But nonetheless, it led the wise men to the manger in Bethlehem. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opened the treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh, all this expensive stuff. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Harold, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So God told them, don't go back to Harold. And so they left. And that's where we find verse 13. After they left, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and says, now take your family, go to Egypt because Harold is going to destroy the child. King Harold found out that the people have, the Magi has left, okay, so he's going to come to destroy the child. And so Joseph responded, he obeyed, he took up the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Harold. This was to fulfill what has been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I've called my son. This prophet is Hosea, which I'll talk more later in, um, when I talk about this verse. Verse 16, Then when Herod saw that he has been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. He sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. It's been some times, so he estimated, you know, this king, he should be less than two years old. And he sent his people to slaughter all the children. Now, Bethlehem is not a big town, so the estimate is probably less than 50 children. Yet, it wiped out an entire generation in a small village. Then, what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, 
weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Jeremiah, the prophet, prophesied about the Babylonians coming to destroy Jerusalem and they will slaughter all the young children. Rachel is, a, is supposed to be the mother of the nation and so she is weeping. So in the New Testament, when they quote the Old Testament, they may just quote one verse, but we have to take in view the whole context. So he's saying, King Harold is going to slaughter the babies just like the time in when the Babylonians came. And so there will be great weeping. Now this is part of the Christmas story. You think about Christmas, we always think about the manger, oh, the cute baby, right? The, the parents and then the shepherd with those sweet-smelling sheep, you know, even though they are not sweet-smelling. And then the, the wise man with all their treasures. But right here in this story, the story of infanticide, it's a story of mindless violence. The moment Jesus was born, his life was threatened. And because of him, a whole generation of children, male boys in a village were wiped out. This is part of the Christmas story. Where there's tears, there's weeping. Where there are fears. So when we tell our Christmas story, what kind of story do we tell? What kind of peace, love, joy do we talk about? Wes Salinger, who is a, a pastor, he shares this Christmas tradition he has of, in his family. Every time at Christmas, they will remake the manger, the nativity scene, which is the manger scene uh, in their home, a small little model. One day when he came home, he looked at the scene and he, took, he did a double take because right in the manger where there's a cute baby and uh, Joseph and Mary, there was a dinosaur, a T-Rex. And he was shocked. He was horrified. He says, my first reaction was to take away the dinosaur. And he thought, this is probably the doing of my five-year-old son, Scott. But what was I going to tell Scott? You know, how am I going to not discourage him? Maybe I'll tell him that, you know, by the time of Jesus, dinosaurs were extinct. No more dinosaurs. So he was going to remove it. And then he thought to himself, he says, I caught myself because I realized that in essence, my son had caught the truth of Christmas. For Christmas came to help us face the dinosaurs' life places before us. You know, those menacing terrors that seem to be so strong and so powerful, Christmas came to defeat them. You know, there was a dinosaur in the manger. And that was Harold. There was a greater dinosaur behind the axe of Harold. And that was Satan. And the dinosaur represents all the fears, all the menacing terrors of our life that Jesus came to defeat. I mean, who was Harold? You know, he slaughtered a few of his own sons and wives because he thought they were plotting against him. King Emperor Augustus even said that it's better to be a pig in the house of Harold than to be his sons because you have a greater chance of surviving. Friends, today we live in a broken and troubled world. Right? Every time we step out, we feel it. What do you feel? The heat, global warming. We're so concerned, you know, rising water levels. Even our government, right? They have got all these plans to reclaim land and build those protection to protect our coast, coastlines because they're forward thinking. You say, oh, I don't really feel it, but then every time we spend money, we feel the pinch. After COVID, there's hyperinflation, there are recession fears, everything is expensive, right? 
your gas is expensive, your electricity is expensive, your car is expensive. Every time you eat out as a family, you feel like, wow, this, they're paying more than before. This is a broken and troubled world. A world with wars and rumours of wars. We wonder when will China fight whoever and we are concerned. And then there are wars that are going on. The civil war in Myanmar, you know, there's still a war there, right? Most of us probably forgotten about it even though we raised money for them. Then the actual wars, Ukraine and Russia is almost two years. And then suddenly there's this Gaza and Israel crisis. We live in a world that's uncertain. And after COVID-19, every new wave, every new virus, we are concerned. No wonder the world needs a bit of sweetness. That's why the songs we sing in Christmas from the, from the culture is what Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer that talks about don't bully people, huh? Or kissing the Santa Claus under a mistletoe to have romance. Or the Grinch. You know, Christmas means we must be generous. We must emphasize and really value family relationships. Now, all these are good messages. They make us feel good. They give, give us hope. But really, they are just a plaster, a band-aid over our open wounds. After the feeling of Christmas wears off, how are we going to face the challenges of the reality of, of life we face in January, February, and March, and so on? What gives us the resources to face the terrors of life? And so we think, our Christmas message, can it bear the weight of the realities of life? And to do that, we need to understand the full Christmas story. That Christmas is not really the beginning of a story. You know, birth of children, babies, is really the beginning. But Christmas is not the beginning. You know, it's actually the beginning of the end, right? So let's look at Hosea. Hosea 11, the hope, peace, joy, and love of Christmas. First, Matthew 15, it says, The prophet has spoken out of Egypt, I've called my son. This prophet is Hosea. And Matthew was quoting for Hosea 11. So let's look at the context. First, the prophet Hosea, uh, the book was written about 700 BC. means about 700 years before the time of Jesus. God raised Israel to show to the surrounding nation who he was, to call them to him, but Israel kept failing. So God sent prophets to ask them to repent. And in the book of Hosea, he asked Hosea to marry a prostitute. And then she ran away. And God told the prophet, go buy her back. Why? Because this relationship symbolizes the relationship between God and Israel. So Hosea 11 said, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. He's calling them, talking to the Israelites who were in sin. What were they doing? The more they called, called them, the more they went from them, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Basically, they're turning away from God to idols. And so at this point, God is reminding them of what happened in Exodus, how God saved them. Through Abraham, God is to save the nation, but Abraham is only one person. So how? So he became one family. A family of 73 went to Egypt and stayed there for 430 years where they became slaves and that's how they became a nation. And when time came, God brought them out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. And this is what this text is referring to. Reminding the Israelites who are sinning, who are turning away from God, remember how I delivered you, how you are called my son. So when Matthew quotes this, he's drawing the parallel. Israel was called the son of God. Jesus is called the son of God. God called Israel out of Egypt as part of his 
redemptive plan. God would call Jesus and his family out of Egypt to fulfill his redemptive plan. So in Hosea, he's saying that you're sinning, but I'm calling you back. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim is, a, is one of the tribes that represents Israel. Essentially, he's talking to Israel. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. I've become to them as one who lifts the yoke from the jaws I bent down to and fed them. From the idea that God was a lover to Israel, now he's saying God is their father who loved them, who fed them. And later he says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Atma? How can I treat you like Zebulim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man. The Holy One in your midst, I will not come in wrath. Israel deserved judgment, but God didn't give them judgment. Why? Because He's like a lover, He's like a father, His compassions are stirred. And this is the love story of Christmas. How does God show His love for us concretely? Well, when God became man through Jesus, He took on flesh. He didn't just come to enjoy life. He came to suffer and die, but He resurrected. So the essence of the Christian story is the resurrection. And hence Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Philip Yancy, who commented on the relationship between God and Israel, says, in choosing Israel, God was seeking such a relationship. His voice sings with pride as he reminisces about the early days. It is not Ephraim, my dear son, the child in whom I delight. The joy fades away as God abruptly shifts from a perspective of a parent to that of a lover a wounded lover. What have I done wrong? He demands in a tone of sadness and horror and rage. You might expect God to respond to His people's betrayal with a blast of divine wrath, but instead the thought of destroying Israel grieves God. His compassion overwhelms His desire for justice and restrains His hand. And God shows this compassion to us through Jesus. And hence, for us to understand the Christmas story, we need to understand the full story, which is the other fest festival in the Christian calendar, which is Easter. Without Easter, Christmas makes no sense. I mean, why are we singing about the birth of a baby and celebrating smelly sheep? Without Easter, Christmas makes no sense, but without Christmas, Easter is impossible. And so Christmas makes Easter possible while Easter makes Christmas meaningful. For God to die for us, he must become man. He must be born as a baby. And he was born so that he may die. So for us to understand the full meaning of Christmas and the love of God in Christmas, we do not just think about Christmas, but we understand the very moment Jesus was born, he left the glories of heaven, took on the body of a human, was a fragile little baby, his life was threatened, he suffered and he died. But friends, that is not the end of the story. Because he died and he resurrected. And so Jürgen Mokman, 
He says, a God who cannot suffer is poorer than any human. For a God who is incapable of suffering is a being who cannot be involved. Different religions, the Greeks thought of God as apatheia, apathetic. Gods cannot have emotions. God is far away from us. But a Christian, God is different. Christianity shows us a God who can suffer, who can, who can cry. Because if God cannot cry, then He cannot weep with those who are weeping. If God cannot grieve, then He cannot grieve with those who are grieving. But how does God weep and cry and grieve? God became human on Christmas. That's the significance of Christmas. God ripped apart the fabric of time and space and entered into His creation. That's unthinkable. Many religions talk about life after death, but none tells us about a God who came to die for us and resurrected to give us true hope, love, peace, and joy. You say, why, can, why doesn't God just, you know, just not punish people who have fallen, not punish sinners? Well, God cannot because it is in nature to be perfect. Being perfectly holy, it means that anything less than holiness, He has to judge because He's perfectly righteous. If God can say, close one eye, don't punish, then He's not perfect. Why don't God just wave a magic wand, right, and says, okay, la, I mean, just remove all sins or just punish all sinners. No, it cannot because if you punish all sinners, all of us are done for. But God actually did punish the world, right? He did it before, in the time of Noah. God restart, wanted to start all over again, save Noah's family of eight, destroy the whole world, and what happened? Right after they left the ark, Noah and his family fell into sin. Because friends, sin is not a matter of our actions or behaviours. Sin is a matter of our sin nature, not sinful acts. We need a supernaturally graced heart to be changed. Our nature needs to be changed. And so God knows. And so when Noah left the ark, the first thing God did with him was to, was to start the covenant. A covenant was how God administered his relationship to his creation, to his people. Through the covenant, God says, I'm going to save the world, redeem the world. And through the seed of the, seed of the woman who comes through Noah, and then with this Abraham, he, 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 he makes another covenant through the family of Abraham, um, a particular tribe through the son of David, he made another covenant to say this Messiah will be king. And that is why I say Christmas is not the beginning of a story. The birth of a baby is not the beginning of the story, it's the beginning of the end. Christmas means the end times have started. Means God's redemptive plan have worked out through the centuries, have promised the Savior, and He finally came. And He came so that He may die. And so God paid a high price. Walter Bugerman, he says, God resolves that he will stay with, endure, and sustain his world, notwithstanding the sorry state of mankind. It is now clear that such a commitment on God's part is costly. God didn't just wave a wand and say, no more sin, I'll punish all sinners. He says, I'm going to redeem them. And to do that, it was costly because it cost God his son. On Christmas, God became man so that he may die, but he resurrected. That's the cost that Jesus paid for us. That is the love that God demonstrated concretely for us. And so when we celebrate Christmas, every year we celebrate, we sing Christmas songs, let us consider, 
what is the message of Christmas that we are bringing? Is it able to bear up the weight of the realities of life, the challenges, the terrors, the grief, and the tears? What kind of Christmas message are we sharing? And so Walter Moore, he shared this. Um, Russell Moore, the guy who talked about, you know, overhearing the conversation between the two young men that I shared at the beginning. He says, in a time when tragedy seemed to learn of an in a time when we seem to learn of a new tragedy each day, the unbearable likeness of Christmas seems absurd to a watching world. You know why the young men complain about Christmas? Because a few hours before that, they just heard this news of the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre. Basically, a, person, a gunman went to this primary school and shot, killed 20 primary school boys, kids, and, and a few teachers. 20 is about the same number that Harold the Great killed in Bethlehem. And when they face such tragedies and it comes to Christmas, no wonder the young man was saying, when we sing about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, we sing about kissing Santa under the mistletoe, what does it do for us? Because without Christ, you know, Christmas is, is merely a feel-good vacation. It's merely a celebration of consumerism. And at best, it's a meaningless mass. In a time when we seem to learn of a new tragedy every day, the unbearable likeness of Christmas seems absurd to a watching world. But even in the best of times, we all know that we live in a groaning universe, a world of divorce courts and cancer cells and concentration camps. Just as we sing about the joy, about the coming of the promised one, we ought also to sing with groaning that he's not back yet. And sometimes with groaning so deep for lyrics. Tears, grief, fears, they are part of the Christmas story. They are part of the reason why Jesus became a baby, so that he may die, and he resurrected, and he overcame all these dinosaurs of our lives. Let me share this story with you. I'm just going to read it. It's by this person called Carly Harvey. And she shared, she said, we needed a miracle. That much was obvious. The summer of 1995 was glorious. It was warm, full of picnics, evening walks with my husbands and family, three girls, the grandkids, and my son. But in September, there was a knock on the door in the early morning hours. The deputy sheriff said, Mr. and Mrs. Harvey, there's no easy way to say this, but there has been a shooting. It's Chad. He's dead. Our 20-year-old son was dead, murdered just three blocks from our home. A crazed acquaintance, possibly in a jealous rage over his wife's attention to Chad, had shot him after the party. We stumbled through the funeral and the court appearances. We leafed through the sympathy cards and folded Chad's clothes to store them away. The nights grew colder and wind and snow came. Suddenly, it was Christmas. I was miserable. All around me, there were carols being sung, nativity scenes sprung up on our lawns and our neighbourhood, and the television schedule was punctuated with Christmas specials. I didn't even notice the TV. I spent my evening sitting on the couch crying and brooding. God had failed me. I trusted Him, and He hasn't come through. Oh, I, think, I didn't think He did it on purpose. He just wasn't able to keep that man from killing my son. 
but I wish that he had been more honest about it to begin with and that he hasn't promised to answer my prayers if he couldn't do it. I stopped eating and lost 30 pounds. I began to be disappointed when I woke up in the morning, still alive and doomed to live through another day. I wanted nothing so much as I wanted to die, and it was Christmas. Feeling the way I felt about God, clutching such anger and hunkering down against the world, I don't know why I prayed that prayer I did. But one night, I lifted my tear-fogged eyes to heaven and I said, God, if you care about me, I need a miracle. Otherwise, I think I'll probably die. My husband Charlie asked, what kind of miracle do you ask God for? I said, I don't know, but I'll know it when it comes. I had given up trying to sing, although I always loved singing. Singing was Chad's thing. Music was Chad's thing. When he died, all the music seemed to evaporate from my dry soul. I went out to the cemetery to try to sing a lullaby to my boy, but only a small, sad squeak came out of my throat. It all seemed so futile. I had faith that Chad was in God's hands. I knew Chad hasn't ceased to exist, but I also knew I couldn't get to him, and I wanted to, desperately. People would tell me that someday I would see Chad again. I knew that. Someday wasn't soon enough. Charlie reminded me that I still had him and the girls to live for. I knew what I had left, but what I had lost seemed to swallow everything. One evening before Christmas, I was sitting huddled on the living room couch when there was a knock on my door. My 13-year-old daughter Sarah went to answer. She said, there's no one, but I found this. She held up a seedy-looking centerpiece of evergreen branches and green apples and a plastic bird perched on top. Attached was a note. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. But we couldn't find a partridge and our pear tree died, so you have to settle for a bluebird and an apple tree. And then there was a scripture announcing the birth of John the Baptist. Nothing else, no name, no address, no clue where the package came from. We were dumbfounded. Could someone be doing the 12 days of Christmas for us? I wondered aloud. And my daughter said, I always hated that song. Me too. But this was different. We brainstormed through trying to guess who might be responsible for our surprise. We eliminated almost everyone and finally we gave up and went to bed. Sleep didn't come easily. There were too many questions. The next night, we sat in the living room waiting. The television was on and every time we thought we heard a sound, Charlie would hit the mute button and listen. I said, this is really odd. I feel funny. I don't know what is it. And my husband said, I think it's anticipation. Yes, that's what it was. For a long time, we have been just surviving day to day, not looking forward to anything. Yet here we were waiting for the knock on the door. It didn't come at 8 p.m. or 9 or 10. None of us wanted to admit how disappointed we were. We made up excuses to stay up late. And suddenly there was a loud rap on the front door. Sarah jumped up, nearly knocking over the coffee table. She opened the door and pulled in another package. It was a box of turtle candy and two doves. Dove bars fastened on top. And it said, On the second day of Christmas, my true love sent to me two turtle doves. And the scripture told of the angel Gabriel's appearance to Virgin Mary. Something began to stir inside me. I began to suspect this was God's answer to my prayer. This was my miracle. Somehow he had laid it on someone's heart to do this thing that was so incredibly right. On the third day of Christmas, brought three French hens in the form of 
Cornish hands. And the note said their French cousin lost their passports. And so you have to settle for this. The fourth day was our date for our support group meeting. We sat in a circle of parents of murdered children group and told them our story. Someone was going through such trouble to remind us of something I had forgotten. That God still loved me. The group caught the excitement. Some of them were laughing and some cried. I think maybe they had forgotten too that God loved them. We could barely wait to get home to see what the fourth day brought. And we found this package, a cassette tape. And so Sarah rushed to a boombox. We put the tape and it's about three songs about birds. The fourth day of Christmas brought four calling birds. We sang along as the songs blasted till 2 a.m. Who needed sleep? The surprises continued over the next eight days. The 10th day of Christmas, we found 10 wooden leaping puppets. The 11th day, we found a tape. And the 12th day of Christmas, there were 12 drums made out of frosted Oreos. Always there was a portion of Scripture preparing us for the holiday to come. Suddenly it occurred to me that I was looking forward to the next day and to life itself. My miracle. When I couldn't talk to God, when I didn't want to talk to Him, He sent my miracle through someone else, anonymously. We finally found out who our secret benefactors had been. We are grateful that they have been willing to let God use them. My miracle. God used earthly hands to send it to me, but His fingerprints were all over it. You know, this Christmas, we may be enjoying having joy, peace, love, but certainly there are people who are not. And so let God use us to be a blessing to others, to share this joy, peace, love of Christmas to those around us. You know, the last few weeks has been the hardest time of my 20 years in full-time ministry. Um, those of you who know, you know. Those who don't know, you don't know. I was preaching at a church retreat in JB. I was on my way to JB with another church when I got the news. And you know, when I got the news, um, I almost fell over. You know the phrase, you feel a punch in your gut? I always thought it was metaphorical. Until I got the news, I literally felt a pain in my gut and I, I doubled over. And you can imagine be, uh, preaching at a church retreat, you know, trying to inspire people. Between preaching and making people laugh, I was weeping alone in my hotel room. And I thought, maybe this Christmas is going to be different. How am I going to face Christmas? How am I going to face the church? Last week, I came back finally. But you know, I didn't enter the hall for worship. I came in during Saturday night to worship, but Sunday morning, I couldn't. The Chinese worship and the English worship, I just stand outside, shake hands and stood there. For the first time in my 20 years of ministry, I didn't want to come to church. And I thought, this Christmas is going to be different. How am I going to celebrate Christmas? And you know, the Lord reminded me that maybe Christmas was not so different for Him. Because the moment He was born, He was walking towards the cross. In our preparation, I came across this text, the passage that says, Grief never ends, but it changes. It's a passage, not a place to stay. Grief is not a sign of weakness, 
not a lack of faith. It is a price of love. We grieve because we love and we loved dearly. And it occurred to me, God grieved over His Son because it's the price He paid to love us. And because God grieved over His Son, we don't have to grieve for eternity. And so, hey, let me emo a bit because tomorrow I won't be able to cry, hopefully. Okay, so, when we understand this message of Christmas, God became man to die for us, but that's not the end of the story. He resurrected. Then we can truly have the hope, joy, peace, and love that God has promised. So may we truly have a blessed Christmas. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you for your word. And once again, uh, we're reminded of the story of the manger. How Joseph and Mary must have felt the terrors, the fears, the tears, the anxiety. And more so, how God you have felt when you sent your son. But Lord, you are truly a God who loves because you are God who suffered. It's a suffering that gives you the right and credibility to love as you have. And we give thanks to you because in the midst of this broken and troubled world, Jesus said, I've come to give you peace, peace not of this world. And we know our hope, our peace, our joy, our love it's not because Rudolph didn't get bullied but because Jesus Christ you died on the cross and you resurrected thank you I pray in Jesus name Amen